Welcome, my friends, to the Bob and Brad podcast. My name is Mike Keenitz, and today I'm interviewing Dr. Deb Rickso, who is a physical therapist. We are going to be talking about SI joint pain and dysfunction, how it's diagnosed, what it looks like, and treatment options for it. So without further ado, here is Dr. Deb. So welcome back to the program, Deb. Thank you for joining us. Well, I'm glad to be here. Thank you for asking me. You were our uh, first guest on the very first episode, so it's been a while. Wow. I didn't realize I was the first guest, but uh, yeah, that was fun. And I expect this to be even more fun. (laughs) All right. So today we're going to be talking about sacroiliac dysfunction, which is also known as SI pain or SI dysfunction. Um, Can we begin by getting your backstory? Sure. Um, Well, I'm a physical therapist and I worked at a large county hospital for a zillion years. And during that time, I developed an expertise for sacroiliac dysfunction. And I was getting referrals from physicians, from other therapists, even from therapists outside of the hospital, because I developed this expertise. Um, And I went back to school because at the time, therapists were graduating with their doctorate. And I wanted to keep up. So I went back and did my doctorate and chose this area to do my research on for my capstone project. And I found that the method that I was using that I developed myself through integrating a lot of the other methods that are out there, um, actually the pieces and parts had uh, were backed by research. Not the entire method, but the pieces and parts. So that gave me the inspiration to actually start um, my own business. In 2011, I uh, founded Ritzo Health Education and started teaching other therapists continuing education courses in this area. Um, So that is kind of the backstory. Then in 2016, after 30 years of working at the same hospital, I chose to start my next chapter and um, work on what I'm doing now, which is trying to get the word out and help people that have sacroiliac pain and pelvic girdle pain. So you've written books on this. You also have a website and social media channels. Would you mind telling our audience where they can find this information? Yes, uh, my website is Ritzo, my last name, healtheducation.com. And on that website, there's all the information regarding my books and my courses, as well as some educational information. Um, You want me to show you? Sure. (laughs) Okay. So this is my first book, which was 2018. So I found, uh, you know, when I left Metro, that is Metro Health Hospital, that's when I knew I wanted to write a book. And I went uh, to our professional conferences and found a publisher that was very interested in my work. And so this was published by OPTP.com, uh, Sacroiliac Pain. And it's, it's written for the consumer in consumer language. So it's, uh, and it has a lot of anatomy and um, exercises and philosophies in it. Because it's all too, you know, including uh, our philosophy towards what we're doing. And then the second book was about back and pelvic girdle pain and pregnancy and postpartum. And that uh, was published in 2020 
by the same publisher, OPTP. And again, it has um, it's has a lot of color pictures and exercises um, and philosophy and approach. Um, and it's has a lot of problems that is very common during pregnancy and postpartum. So, yeah, they're nice books. They're not like your uh, anatomy textbooks in college that you have to barely understand half the wording in it. Right. <laughs> they're well written for the uh, lay person, so they're easy to understand. All right. So, can you describe? You told us you're working on a paper. Can you tell us more about that? Yes, my the paper actually is uh, due to be published in February. Um, at with the Orthopedic Nursing Journal, which is a peer-reviewed journal. It's international. I was actually approached to write this article for the nurses by someone who heard me lecture. It's pretty much what we're going to be talking about today. Um, what do you need to know about sacroiliac dysfunction? And she felt that the nurses really needed to know this. So um, I kind of was reluctant to tell you the truth at the beginning because it was, um, I know what it takes to write an article for a peer-reviewed journal. You know, you're just not, you know, like writing your neighbor. I mean, it's a lot of work. And it, so I, she kept on after, after me <laughs> and I finally agreed and I, I bit the bullet and did that was one of the things I was doing during the pandemic was writing this article. And so I'm I'm proud of it. It's going to be published in uh, February next month. So is it kind of like a study or just a review or what is it? It's a literature review. And basically it's talking about the points that we're going to be talking about today. But it's going to be actually giving the literature what's backing up what I'm telling you today. Oh, okay. So, so it's so to help nurses identify sacroiliac dysfunction, who would be most likely to have it. And a lot of nurses have low back problems. A lot of sacroiliac pain is not diagnosed. It's just kind of lumped in as low back pain. And there's about 30 to 35% of people that have nonspecific low back pain actually have sacroiliac pain. And some of it's diagnosed and some of it's not. So it's to help with that process and so that they also know, you know, what it, how, what it looks like, what it looks like, what the uh, diagnosis is, what the treatment is, what uh, is going on in the literature out there so that they just are more educated. What's the paper going to be called? What you need to know about sacroiliac dysfunction. Oh, okay. (laughs) Good title, fitting. Yeah. I mean, I'm very, um, I, I like to, to say things plain, plainly so people understand and they don't have to guess. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, I think we'll get into the meat and potatoes of this conversation, start talking about SI pain. So the first question we have is, what does SI pain look like? So what does it look like? We... I like to break it down between what does the pain look like and how does a person look when they have it? What problems do they have? So first, the pain. We know that the pain can be localized. It can just be in one spot. Like if you take your hand and put it on the back of where that um, 
rectangle is on the model, that is kind of where the sacroiliac localized pain is. But it can also be radicular, meaning that it can go down the leg. It can be confused with sciatica from that's being generated from the lumbar spine. And sometimes you can have pain from that's aggravating that nerve that's from coming from the spine and also coming from the SI joint. So it can be a double whammy. What does a person look like um, when they are having these problems? The typical thing is they have problems with their, their transitional movements. So that means when they're moving from one spot to another spot, so they're, they're transitioning. So that means like getting up out of a chair, getting out of a car, standing on one leg is really, really not good, does not feel good. And when you're walking, of course, you're standing on one leg and then you're standing on the other leg. So walking can be a problem. Sometimes it gets better as you walk. Sometimes it doesn't. Sitting is, um, and stairs also can be a problem. Sitting a lot of times is uncomfortable to just sit evenly. So people will be shifting or, or um, only sitting on one side. Rolling in bed sometimes is a, the worst problem of all. Sometimes rolling in bed is just really, really bad. Laying, lying flat and lifting, uh, bridging, which is like lifting your buttock up and down. So these are like transitional movements where you're shifting your body weight, and that can be very painful. Now, you don't have to have all of these, but people will generally have more than one. So what causes SI pain? A lot of times, the most common thing is having a trauma or an injury. So being in a car accident, being um, having a, a difficult childbirth, having a fall, any type of trauma to the pelvic girdle. So um, even if you've had a, 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 a lumbar fusion, which is, you know, where anytime you have surgery, there is, it's doing some type of a trauma to the tissues. But it, having um, a surgery that's close in proximity to the joint because the sacroiliac joint shares a lot of muscles and ligaments and tendons to its neighbors. Any kind of hypermobility, hypomobility, if you're extra stiff or if you are really extra flexible, that has been known to cause um, those people tend to have more problems with their sacroiliac area. And that's why during pregnancy and postpartum, because you do tend to be more hypermobile and plus you have that all that weight distribution changes in your body and a lot of muscle weakness compiling it is one of the most prevalent times to have sacroiliac dysfunction. It, sacroiliac dysfunction is part of pelvic girdle pain. Your pelvis is, you know, right by your hips area and your sacrum is in the back. So if you have pelvic, if you have sacroiliac pain, that's considered part of pelvic girdle pain. So pregnancy and postpartum are, are big times where you'll see a lot of research done with these women because it's very prevalent um, in that population. If you've had other types of problems with orthopedic problems in your legs, for example, old fracture surgeries, and it's causing you, especially if it's causing you 
to walk differently, like you have a limp or something, that puts different stresses going up the chain and can affect your uh, sacroiliac area. So is SI joint pain more common in women than men? Yes. Okay, I presume. Is it more because after having a child or just the way the hips are shaped and pelvis? Well, if you've had a child, definitely. But there's many women that I've seen that have not had children and they, they still are having, you know, they still have problems with that. Um, so it, it doesn't, it increases your risk, but it's not necessarily. But I've treated men that have sacroiliac problems also because I um, uh, was involved with the industrial rehab program. I was in, in coordinator for that at Metro Health Medical Center where I worked. And so that's where people come to you because they've been hurt at work. And so I've seen a lot of men that from injury and from falling or from whatever, um, or even accumulating stress can have problems in their sacroiliac. But yes, it's much more common in women. I guess we didn't really mention it before, but would you mind describing the SI joint? Because we didn't really say what connects there and how it works. You know what? That is coming up. Oh. <laughs> I have a oh. slide on that. Because okay. you're right. Because we need to cover that. This is just kind of an introduction to who would have it, what does it look like, and how would that person move? Okay. Gotcha. So if we take a look at the skeleton we can see that the sacroiliac joint, if we look at the picture on the left, sits right in the middle of our body. And it is the actually the largest joint in the center of our body is our sacroiliac joint. And it is there so that we can have a shock absorber in our bodies and our system when we are walking. If you look to the next um, over one, to the lumbar, to the spinal column, we can see that the spine has a lot of vertebrae uh, connected to it in a nice curve. And at the bottom of the spine, we have the sacrum. And the, what connects the sacrum to the spine is the L5-S1 joint or articulation, where a lot of people tend to have problems. Moving over to the next uh, picture is the picture of our pelvis. And you can see better here where, what the sacroiliac joint actually looks uh, like. And that is, it's a, it's a large, um, it's actually an L-shaped joint. And then moving down, we have our hip joint. So it may look like they're not that close together on this diagram when we're looking at the, the slide on the right. But if you look on the left, everything is pretty close together. We have muscles. Uh, tendons and ligaments that are shared between the sacroiliac joint, the hip joint, the uh, uh, L5-S1 articulation, and even the tailbone, which I didn't mention, but is at the bottom of the sacrum. We have a lot of ligaments that bind down the sacrum to prevent it from moving. There's a very minimal amount of movement at the sacrum because of the way the bones are designed. So the sacrum kind of sits in between the innominate bones and then the ligaments 
uh, are binding down in front and in back. And we're going to come back to this point later on when we're talking about um, the special tests that clinicians do to help determine whether or not you have sacroiliac problems. We also have muscles that are helping hold our whole structure together, right? So we have superficial and deep layers of all the muscles pretty much in our body. Our muscles that are considered our superficial muscles are the moving muscles and the muscles that are our deeper muscles are considered our postural control muscles. We also have superficial and deep muscles, not only in our abdominals, but in our back. We have layers of muscle. We have layers of muscles in our hips. We have the small rotators of our hips on the right of the first picture. And on top of those, we have the large gluteal maximus muscle. And when that gluteus maximus muscle gets weak, which it um, is known to do in back pain in general, as well as sacroiliac dysfunction, the muscles uh, underneath the small rotators on the right side of that first picture tend to uh, have to work too hard and become overworked and they can cause compression on the sciatic nerve, which can then result in that ridiculous pain that I was talking about earlier. The second picture, we can see the hip flexor muscles. Um, The hip flexor muscle attaches to the spine and to our femur, and it's a a very large, strong, powerful muscle. And if that muscle is tighter on one side than the other, it can cause problems. For example, if you always are um, doing something one-sided, either from work or whatever, or if you've had an injury uh, on that one side of your body, you can have problems with an imbalance in your muscles. And this can cause problems, um, as you can see, with the neighboring joints. The top and bottom muscles of our trunk are considered the diaphragm and the pelvic floor muscle. And these are the part of the deep core. And how we breathe affects, believe it or not, our pelvic floor muscles, as well as the dynamics of everything that is going on inside of our body, um, even with our uh, uh, psychosocial uh, aspects. For example, fast breathing and anxiety are linked together. Nerves run through muscles and ligaments and all over our body. And whenever muscles become too tight, they can, or ligaments, they can cause compression and can cause nerve pain. And nerve pain can be, um, is a very common problem and it's not pleasant. It's uh, sharp and shooting, it can be burning, and there's many, many treatments um, for nerve pain from pharmaceuticals to, to therapy to surgery. Other systems in our body besides our musculoskeletal system, which I had just talked about, are our lymph system and our circulatory system. And those two systems are responsible for getting toxic chemicals out of our body and also for bringing the blood in that our nerves need, as well as our muscles and all the rest of our tissues to be healthy. And this can get affected when one system is not working properly.
So all of those in connection with each other can lead to SI joint pain? When you have pain, yeah, yes. When you have pain, a lot of times, depending on how long you've had it, it can affect things that are uh, going on in your circulation, for example. So if you have really tight muscles, those muscles are, n- are not getting the blood flow that they should be getting. And if they're not getting the blood flow, they're not going to be very happy. And that can affect um, the circulation in the area. We know for sure that when we have a lot of inflammation in our body, that that causes a lot of problems. And um, these two systems we just talked about, the lymphedema system and the, the circulatory system, are responsible for getting inflammation problems out of our body. And that's what a lot of the pharmaceuticals are addressing, as well as just moving in general can address your circulation because you know like movement is your muscles pumping and your muscles pumping help get the circulation moving. Everything's kind of connected even with SI joint problems. Right. Absolutely. Because it's the center of our body, too. Yeah. I mean, it's where our spine meets our pelvis, so there's a lot of movement going on there. Anytime you flex or extend or rotate, it's compromising that system if you're doing it improperly or having balances like you were talking about. Right. And then if you stop doing movement in that, in that system, then it's also can be it's a double-edged sword. Right. Because if you stop moving, then the muscles are part of the circulation, helping the circulation, especially for the lymphedema system, to work properly. So your job is to get people moving but not be painful. Correct. (laughs) I think that's every physical therapist. (laughs) All right. uh, Let's get into how SI pain is diagnosed. Okay. So diagnosis is... I think I mentioned this earlier that it's not diagnosed uh, 100% of the time because there's not really a black and white way of diagnosing it. There used to be, but it has the research has not um, backing that up. Sacroiliac pain, there's they're estimating between 30, 35, 38% of people that have nonspecific low back pain have SI, and some of those are diagnosed, some of them aren't. And with pregnancy and postpartum, as I mentioned earlier, it's, it's even more with pelvic girdle pain. And a lot of times these women don't get better. Uh, 7% have serious problems. So it can be life-changing for sure. So to diagnose it, we think of three big categories, and that's injections, imaging, and special tests, which is the hands-on. That's why I've got that hands-on that third figure. Um, so... Let's, we're going to look at each one of those. The problem with imaging is that they've been finding that people that have no pain are having positive results on some of the imaging that they would use to diagnose these conditions. So it's not as foolproof as we would like it to be. But imaging is still very, very important so that we can rule out other significant problems like malignancies or infections and things like that. So you definitely want to have 
you know, if your doctor is recommending that you get imaging, you do want to do that um, to make sure that there isn't anything else that is going on. Knowledge is power, right? We, we want to know, um, we want to know what is going on. So, you know, everybody wants to know what their diagnosis is. So I, I want to back up before I take this next question about the recommended treatment and talk a little bit about knowledge is power. So we have the imaging, like I already mentioned, the um, injections used to be used for the gold standard. If somebody injected your SI joint and your pain completely went away, then that was your diagnosis of SI joint dysfunction. That has uh, lost favor because they have found that by injecting around the joint, that can also stop people's pain where maybe just injecting the joint won't. And that led to the realization that you can have sacroiliac dysfunction without having the actual joint being a problem. Most of the research that's done is done on the joint. Most of the testing that we have, most of the special tests that I'm going to talk about in a minute are also um, talking about the joint and not necessarily the symptom. So that is why this knowledge is power. It's, it's important to know that it's not like when you have a, a, a total knee done, it's because the joint itself is a problem. The cartilage is, is not there, your bone on bone, but you don't want to have um, invasive treatments done to your SI joint if it's really not the joint that is the problem. So it's just good to be able to understand that distinction and talk to your uh, practitioners about that. So the third category um, is the special test. So we have imaging, we have the sacroiliac joint injection, and then we have special tests. And those are manual tests that if you've had any treatment by a, um, a physical therapist or if you've been evaluated by uh, an orthopedic or a physiatrist uh, physician, that you would be having, they would, you know, do some pushing on your on your leg while you're laying down and see whether it causes pain in your uh, sacroiliac joint. And those are called provocative tests. And the thinking now is that it really, to diagnose it accurately, we need to have a combination of your clinical history, like what we talked about before, um, you know, your, your age, whether you've had trauma, whether you, you've had a difficult childbirth, things like that, where your pain is, how your pain is behaving, um, and uh, results of imaging and these special tests. So the special tests have matured over history. And unfortunately, some clinicians are still using special tests that are not valid by research standards. And these are the tests where they're seeing whether you are rotated too much forward or you're rotated too much back, if you, um, you know, you're out of alignment. All these words that people may be saying to you 
these tests that they're doing, whether they're seeing whether one side's up or down or whether they're seeing whether your pubic, uh, your, your um, bone on the back by the sacrum is moving up or down in relation to another bone, those have not uh, have been proven not to be valid and reliable tests um, between practitioners. So research lags um, into getting into the clinic on a timely basis. And that's why it's important to know that um, if someone is telling you these things that you probably should find a, another provider because the sacrum does not really, and I probably shouldn't say that, but the sacrum really doesn't move that much. And so it may feel like it's out of joint, but it, it is most likely just that, that it's an imbalance between the tension and the pulling of the muscles on one side versus the other. And that if you can get those muscles back into position and strengthened, that you will feel um, a lot better. Are there, is there a test you would recommend someone to try or have done to them? Like I said, there, it's not like one test. Yeah. So it's what they're saying now is that it should be a combination of, you know, all that stuff, your clinical history, um, what your pain looks like and any imaging results. And then the special tests, the ones that are being used the most right now are called the provocative tests where they cause you pain in the SI joint. And there's a series of four and two have to be positive. But if you look further into the research, the research is saying that that only gives you like a 38% or something like that probability that it is SI. It's better to rule out SI. So the, the answer is no, not buy back by research. But a, a clinician is taking all the picture of, of everything we just talked about to say whether it's, you know, a sacroiliac dysfunction um, or sacroiliac joint dysfunction. Sure. Do you, so when you used to see people, you don't treat now, right? You just work on online stuff primarily? I, I do um, virtual coaching and physical therapy. Oh, okay. Uh -huh. Do you kind of assess people that have SI joint pain and you have them do things that recreate it to figure it out? And then do you look at the imbalances they have in their lower body, like things you talked about earlier, like muscle imbalances? Is that how you try to correct it then? Right. Um, one of the uh, key things in my method is to palpate the um, bony prominences of the pelvic girdle. So um, the bones on the front. So the, the bones right here. Like if you put your hands on your waist and you put your hands right here, yeah. this bone, which is your ASIS, is more tender on one side than the other. That is a positive response. And then if you put your hands on the front bone, your pubic bone, uh, where the two halves of your pelvis meet, and if that is more tender on one side than the other, the same side that you were having your pain on. So these all have to be positive on the same side, then that's positive. And if you put your hands on your back by the sacrum and you try to feel for the knuckles, I call them the knuckles because they feel like a knuckle. 
And if they feel like they're more tender on one side than the other, then that's positive. So it would be positive if you, if you have all three bony landmarks more painful than the other side. And then in the method in my both of my books, then you do a particular exercise to try to balance that out because that shouldn't be tender. Sure. And if it's not tender, then we are looking at the muscles. So that's looking at the muscles that are in a sagittal plane or this way. And if it's not tender, we still could be having a sacroiliac region problem and we would be looking at um, doing a different exercise to assess that. The exercises in my book are all what I call remedial exercises. They're very basic. They're very safe. They're very slow. So they're meant to work on imbalances in the pelvis. Okay. No, that makes sense. I was just curious when we were <laughs> talking about all that. So what is the recommended treatment for SI pain? Okay. So it really, there is in the literature, not one particular recommended treatment. It's basically whatever journal you're reading, whatever practitioner you're reading will have their own treatments. And the research has been um, very difficult to um, compare because they're not using the same, um, what they call as outcome tools. So if you go to an orthopedic surgeon, if you go to a chiropractor, if you go to a surgeon, if you go to a pain management doctor, if you go to a physical therapist or a general doctor, you're going to get different treatments. And I hear this all the time because like I had mentioned, I do coaching and people will come to me and they, and they have been through, you know, not, it's not uncommon to have been through three, five years of going through revolving doors trying to get help. So um, it, it really just depends. The research does say that exercise and education are, are very important. Um, the physical therapy research, the physical therapy um, literature regarding um, pregnancy does say that exercise and support belts um, are helpful. Manual therapy is mixed. There's not strong evidence that you should have manual therapy. And that's really what chiropractors do. That's what a lot of therapists do. That is what I had done early on in my practice, because that was um, the thinking, because we're trying to um, put things back after they've gone out. But we now know that they're not really out. So does that mean manual therapy can't help if there's a lot of soft tissue tightness and you can't help relax the muscles? No, the, the literature is mixed on that. Um, it also says that um, for postpartum that uh, that they would also benefit from the exercise and the education as far as like, for example, body mechanics. So if you are always doing something the wrong way that's causing and feeding into the problem, you can do all the exercises you want. But if you're always carrying, for example, your child on the same hip all the time, then that's feeding into the problem. So we need to address education as well. 
So the method in my books, like I said, I, we've already talked about this, but it's called the pelvic girdle musculoskeletal method. And it is um, based on what we talked about, all the different layers of the muscles and that they need to be working in a coordinated way and that it uses our breath and the rhythm of our breathing and connecting our mind, being mindful and causing a total relaxation of our bodies so that we can get the movement we want. There's a lot of research done on uh, pain and there's a big um, connection between uh, fear of movement and lack of improvement. Because if you're fearful of movement, then that causes your system to be like on guard and your muscles aren't going to relax. So that's why in my method, there's a lot with uh, the, the coordinated um, breathing patterns with the exercises. So is there anything else someone can do? So there is a lot. Um, there is a lot. So we already talked about the remedial. If you, we stop, start on the top left of the screen, the remedial exercises that I talked about, um, balancing the pelvis, deep core exercises, also stretching and strengthening the muscles because the muscles are what hold our skeleton together. And if we can try to improve that, then then we'll be able to move better. Um, you want to engage your core during your day-to-day -day activities. If we move over to the left on the top of the screen, aerobic exercises and balance exercises um, are important. And of course, you have to do all of this within your uh, tolerances, within your capability. Uh, we just have to do baby steps and take steps at a, at a time. If we go down below, um, that is there anything else I can do? You want to avoid one-sided activities. Like I mentioned, carrying the toddler on one hip, carrying um, the, you know, the briefcase or the purse or uh, laying on one side in bed, always laying on the same side, uh, working at your computer and having it off to an angle and always turning and always leaning to the same side. There's a lot of things that we do that are one-sided activities that we may not even realize, but if we start thinking about it, we can find, we can figure that out. Moving over to the right, stress reduction in general is huge. We all have stress in our lives. I think that's part of living in today's world. How we manage, and stress is not bad in, its, in and of itself, but how we manage that stress and can make a big difference because stress causes an increase in hormones that rev up our fight or flight system that causes our muscles to get tight, which is what, you know, I talked about earlier. And you know this, even if you have had a bad day, you know, if someone just touches your upper neck muscles, you just might feel, not even notice, but then you realize how tight they are. Some people don't store their tension in their neck. They may store it in their belly. They may store it in their throat. They may store it in their pelvic floor. So getting rid of stress, uh, like if there's one big thing that you know is a stress thing and you can do something about it and you are having a lot of pain, I would definitely, you know, advocate for that. Breath awareness moving over is huge. Breath awareness is part of any type of 
um, meditation, yoga, uh, Reiki, any kind of relaxation therapies that you can think of. Breath awareness is critical, and it's because um, it will uh, um, actually research shows that the deep breathing affects the uh, the stress. It affects the tone in our vagal nerve, which causes a whole relaxation thing. So there's tons and tons out there about breath awareness and breathing. Avoid ruminating, moving over to the left. Ruminating, some people may not know what that word is. I didn't um, until I started doing this work. Yeah, well, ruminating. I know, I know what a ruminating animal is, but what's <laughs> ruminating? Ruminating, so there you go. Rum, so don't feel bad if you don't know what that is. Ruminating is when you replay the same story in your head over and over again of something that was a bad thing that happened and you can't do anything about it, but you just keep on playing it over and over in your head. And it's just not helpful. And it's not helpful to your inner body and your inner system. So that is, and we could ruminate about anything. You know, we all do it. We all do it. It's not like we don't all do it, but some people do it more and are more uh, really highly skilled <laughs> at ruminating. And so if you're one of those people, look it up and try to, to you know, if there's something that's in your past and you can't change it, thinking about it, just like say, no, I'm not thinking about it. When you find yourself thinking about it, or um, choose just one time a day, like maybe in the morning or something or at noon that you're going to think about it and then do not let yourself think about it the rest of the day. So anyway, that's, that's, just, that's just one tip. Um, healthy eating habits, uh, eight to 10 glasses of water or fluid per day. It doesn't have to be water. You just want to make sure that you're hydrated. Healthy eating habits, there's a ton out there. I think you guys know what that means. <laughs> what is healthy eating habit, habits, right? So that's really important because if you're having pain, you want to you want to nourish your body so it has all the right uh, stuff to work on the inflammation, work on getting you to feel better. You'll feel better if you eat healthier. And people may not believe that if you don't tend to have healthy eating habits. That's but if you give it some time. Yeah, it's very true. You'll feel better. Yeah. I guarantee it. I'm a, actually a, a vegetarian. Um, I didn't always used to be a vegetarian, but um, in my mid 40s, I I turned over. To, I switched to being a vegetarian. I do eat fish, and I have never looked back. And just one day, I just stopped, and uh, yeah, I feel great. Yeah, a lot of it's just getting processed food out of your diet. Processed food, absolutely, absolutely. Healthy sleeping habits, that's another big one. Uh, a lot of people struggle with sleep and and there's help out there. There's uh, sleep studies that can be done to see if there's any problems that, that can be helped medically. But often it is, um, could even just be that you're ruminating and you can't turn your mind off at night, things like that. Um, so healthy sleep habits, again, there's a lot of information out there about sleep and healthy body weight, of course. Um, if you have a healthy body weight, it's going to just make things a lot easier for you. And of course, there's an awful lot on that. And to seek professional help uh, in, in the areas that you know you need help in. 
And so that is things that you can do that are aside from uh, the direct things that you would think of going to to the doctor. Um, right now, it's a psychosocial. What I'm talking about uh, today is called a biopsychosocial model of care. And that means that it's bio. So we are looking at, you know, our muscles and our joints and everything that's happening inside of our body from an anatomy's perspective and how it all works, because that's important. Um, that's the bio. The psychosocial part is what we've just been talking about. Our, our mind, our, our, our control of our thoughts, how our thoughts turn into feelings, how that affects our hormonal system, um, the, our judgments, what we do, and our beliefs. There is a lot written and researched about our beliefs. You could have the most wonderful therapy in the entire world, and you may not get better if you do not believe that you will get better. And that's hard to believe, actually, but it is true. They've done a lot, a lot of research, and that, that keeps cropping back up, your beliefs. Also, if you're satisfied at your job. Now, who would think that would have a, have a play or a role in how, what your outcome is going to be? But that has been proven time and time again. How happy you are at your job and your belief whether you're going to get better or not um, will affect your outcome. So there is a lot we can do. And so if any of this is resonating with you, um, you know, knowledge is power. And we need to act on that knowledge in order to make use of it. So in, in summary, we, we just talked about all the, I think I already summarized it, so I'm not going to beat a dead horse. But um, I have social media on Instagram and Facebook at Ritzo Health Education, LinkedIn at Deborah Ritzo, and Twitter at, at Deborah Ritzo PT. Uh, your last name is spelled R-I-C-Z-O for the uh, listening audience, if you're curious. Yes. And so I guess my last question is, what's the, someone starts having SI pain, what's the first thing you recommend? Well, the first thing I recommend is not to be fearful and put maybe something that happened in your past in front of you. Um, to use good judgment on your activities, you want to keep moving. You don't, you want to be able to do your day-to-day -day tasks, but you don't want to climb a mountain the next day. You know, you want to use good judgment because your body has a great capacity to heal. And so um, often we sabotage ourselves. You know, we have to, you know, go help that friend move or something, even though our backs are telling us that maybe we shouldn't do that. So listen to your body. Uh, use good judgment. Keep moving with your day to day. Don't lay down and go to bed and for four days because you're afraid something is going to get worse, because that's probably the worst thing that you can do. If you are used to taking anti-inflammatories or you may want to check with your physician about that, anti-inflammatories are good. You can use some ice uh, over the area that hurts for about 10 minutes or so. Um, but you do want to keep uh, you do want to keep up your daily activities as much as possible and within reason. Is the second thing you recommend buying your book? Well, <laughs> I mean, if it just happened, I mean, but you know, it's not a huge investment. Let's just say that. 
for the way we spend money on medical care. No, so, yeah, it's, it's a lot cheaper. Know, and if nothing else, you could pass it on to a friend that might need it. Yeah, the more self-educated you are on your problems, the better you'll understand them too. Absolutely. Well, thank you for joining us today. Is there any last remarks you'd like to add? I'm sure I forgot something I wanted to say. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> Isn't that the way do. it is? Uh, I do want to say that I am very approachable. And if somebody wants to follow me on Instagram, you can comment. I post every day, pretty much every day. And I make it, I try to make it relatable. And I do stories not only about what we talked about today, but about, um, about me and my life and what's I, what I'm doing and my puppy. <laughs> and um, so you might like to do that. I am honestly, it's just me. I don't have a team of people. I have a Facebook account, but I focused on Instagram. Um, and so if you are, you know, if that's where you want to follow me is what I'm saying, because that's where all my posts are going to be that are, that are going to be probably helpful. You can message me. I'll get back to you. I watch those all the time. And if you need extra help, I'm available for coaching. And where your coaching information is available on your site if people want to work with yeah, you? Yeah, it's, it's on my website. It's also on um, Instagram. It's okay. a link in my bio. Uh, and you just you could just, or you can email me. You can email me through my website um, or through Instagram. You can message me uh, regarding the coaching. Sure. Well, thanks for joining us. You're welcome.